0: We are honoured to have Professor Tom Shakespeare who is Professor of Disability Research at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Tom has 30 years of experience researching with disabled people and, with his, um, and he also writes and presents extensively about issues facing people with disabilities. Tom writes on everything from dementia rights, social model of disability, uh, relationships and disability and bioethics. So without further delay, uh, I'd like to welcome Tom to our first co-produced care podcast. So welcome Tom. Thank, Thank you so very much. much for, Glad to be here. Coming on. Great. Um, so what I thought might be a good idea to start off if you could talk a little bit about your interests Um and your research and your own experience with uh disability for people who don't know you
1: okay um so i'm disabled myself i was born with restrictive growth and um about uh well 11 years ago i became paralyzed which is a complication of restrictive growth so i n- now use a wheelchair and it was a you know a, t- a, t- a t- turning point in my life because Prior to that, I didn't receive uh, any, um, you know, care or welfare support at all. And then, obviously, becoming a wheelchair user, um, my uh, needs were greater. Uh, I was in rehab hospital and things like that. But my research for something like thirty years has been with disabled people, um, uh, as you mentioned, various aspects of life, uh, including, um, uh, you know, sexuality and children with disability and all sorts of things. Um, when i um i don't know if it was when i became paralyzed but certainly uh, about 10 or 15 years ago i became interested in personal assistance and independent living um and i used personal assistance for a while when i was first paralyzed um and we did a project called uh, pa relationships because there's a lot of research about um employing and whether it's empowering and all those sorts of aspects but i wanted to know you've got two people um they're in some sort of a professional relationship uh, they also presumably are in some sort of social relationship and uh, what's that like and what helps it go well what helps it go less well um and i can talk more about that but that was a piece of work that we did funded by the economic and social research council um and i've also done other projects about rehabilitation and so forth and currently i'm doing a lot of work in africa and asia working with disabled people uh, in all sorts of settings uh, again trying to remove barriers and promote their inclusion
0: that's really interesting i didn't know that the work you're doing over there um, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later on um, just i think it'd be interesting to find out the comparisons with their approach compared to our approach over here um, actually, why don't we sure, talk about I'll it now? Talk about
1: anything. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, <laughs> um, obviously, uh, I mean, I work now at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, um, and uh, I had spent five years at the World Health Organisation, where we edited the World Report on Disability and International Perspectives on Spinal Cord Injury and other work, um, and it really sensitised me to the global experience of disability, four-fifths of disabled people in the developing world, I mean, there's a billion disabled people in the world. That's an awful lot of folk. And I think in UK, we get a little bit focused on our own needs and problems, mm-hmm. and we don't see what it's like in the rest of the world. So I want to try and help understand more about global disability. Um, and so, yeah, I've been in, uh, um, uh, I don't know, Mozambique, Kenya, Uganda, Zambia, Sierra Leone, um, South Africa, wow. uh, Tanzania, India, uh, researching with disabled people I've just booked some, a trip to South India in January so I'm very excited about going to Velore and Dhaka Bangladesh and Sri Lanka um, and I mean obviously those societies are very unequal if you have money
0: yeah.
1: it's very easy to employ people to support you uh, there's lots of people who want work and there's lots of people who work as servants so there is a tradition uh and i know folk who've talked about their elderly relatives in south africa say uh who say look you know there are lots of people who want work and uh this this is a very easy way to support people in their own homes however that's the elite um those are people who have some money to afford to pay for servants um most people cannot um and therefore they're reliant on their family um and uh, it can be very very difficult indeed and um, you know, I think some children with disabilities are neglected to death, let us say, um, and wow. uh, obviously obviously, people don't live as long, generally, access to health care is much poorer. Um, I mean, the plus side is that the household uh, and the family tend to look after disabled members, but it may not be a very easy life. Uh, many countries are now starting uh, what we would call social protection, which is payments to support individuals or families with disabilities, but those payments are usually very, very low. You know, maybe ten, twenty dollars a month. So they're still, uh, you know, a, a, a real financial issue. Um, so yeah, I can talk about that all day. But yeah, um, that's very interesting to, to experience.
0: Um, and also because you've been to so many different countries um, in the global south. Do you feel that anywhere is actually doing things that we, we could learn from?
1: Because I think so, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I don't, I mean, obviously, um, income is so low and uh, government services are so limited. But I think that the approach of community-based rehabilitation, uh, now often called disability-inclusive development, is very promising. You have workers in the community um, identifying disabled people, um, trying to promote really self-help and community initiatives. I mean, I love going to uh, Africa or Asia. Um, I meet a huge number of disabled people who are really very empowered and are fighting for their rights and, you know, it's when you have very little, you value what you have and you work together to to, to make the situation better. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, lots of people would look at what we have in britain and just think oh my goodness you know that's just amazing and mm-hmm. you have people who you can you can pay personal assistance you get a grant to uh, to pay for your um, you know your personal independence or whatever it might be even though we consider these these welfare systems to be inadequate and uh, ineffective Uh, compared to anything that a household would get in in these countries, it's much better. So I think it teaches us, uh, or helps us, appreciate a bit more what we have, and there are those initiatives, um, there is is more, if you like, pride, there is more self-reliance because Mm. people have to get on with it, and there's this initiative, the CBR approach, and the, the good thing about it is that it brings together health, education, um, livelihoods uh, empowerment in one approach, um, and there are these community development workers essentially who go out and try and enable communities to support disabled people. And I've met some really amazing disabled folk in Africa uh, and Asia uh, who who you know are standing up for their rights every day.
0: It's really interesting you could just say that because the the concept of community, I think, um, in some countries is quite strong and in terms of thinking about we'll come on to this later but compliance with certain UN conventions I'm thinking about the UN convention on the rights of persons with disabilities um, I I feel like I've read somewhere that some of the, the global south countries might be more compliant in some areas than the UK potentially because they don't have the institutions that we have um, so I think it'll be really interesting to see some of the, the the work that comes out from your research on that do you know when it's going to be published or is it going to be a spoiler? well I know uh, there's a
1: constant stream of papers so okay. you know, uh, uh, um, my group at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine is called the International Centre for Evidence on Disability okay. and we're publishing work all the time so if people look for the London School of LSHTM and then our group is called ICED. I'm sorry, they're all these acronyms.
0: That's fine. But, we'll um, put a link to it know, somewhere. You're,
1: you're, yeah, you'll find you'll find dozens of papers. Um, and uh, you know, we're we're really committed. I've just been advertising a new uh, PhD studentship for a disabled person from Uganda. Um, mm-hmm. And rather than, I mean, they will come here, but mainly we're going to support them to do research in Uganda. We've got other studentships in Kenya and um, Zambia. And what, what I'm really conscious of, I've travelled, as you say, a lot, but what I think we're lacking is disabled researchers from those yeah. countries. And so we're trying to support the development of that um, cadre of people.
0: That's fantastic. We'll definitely try to push for um, better awareness of that opportunity as well. Thanks. Um, one of the things I thought would be nice to talk about is the uh, social model of disability. So I work in health and social care. And a lot of the discussions, the debates around the social model of disability and what it means to um, people in academia and in practice, I think sometimes doesn't get talked about as much. Um, and I know you've written extensively about the model and also criticise the model in certain different ways. Um, So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, the social model and what it is and how it differs from, say, the medical model, which uh, we have a lot in in this country in in certain ways. Um, And then we can sort of go on to maybe the criticisms of it. Sure. Um,
1: Well, um, back in the 1970s, uh, there was a huge uh, explosion of Disability radicals, grassroots disability radicals, um, up, trying to understand their own situation and improve things. Um, and you know, there was the Liberation Network of persons of people with disabilities. There was Sisters Against Disablement. There was a, a, a lesbian disabled group called Gemma, and there was a group called Upias, U P I A S, Union of the Physically Impaired Against Segregation. Um, and they were a Leninist group. They, you know, they expelled people for not doing the line. They were a pretty hardline. Um, and they uh, came up with um, the social model of disability, as it became called. Um, and basically, they redefined disability. Um, previously, you know, progressive people had talked about maybe persons with disabilities or people with disabilities, i.e., people first who happen to have health conditions or disabilities. Mm. And uh, Upaya said, no, we want to say that disability is oppression. So disability is how you're excluded by society. So people are uh, uh, disabled by society, not by their bodies, is the basic insight. Um, And uh, this is simple, it's powerful, it's empowering, Mm. because uh, disabled people no longer feel that they have uh, uh, you know that the problem is the impairment they highlight the problem of the barriers and the oppression um, and it spread like wildfire. Fire. Somebody from UPIAS, uh, Vic Finkelstein, went to the 1981 Singapore uh, Convention of the New Disabled Persons International um, and away it went. Um, now I, I think it's not the only progressive approach to disability um, and, it's, and it's quite a specific idea um and it tends to be that people think well the social model is everything good and you know if you're pro disability rights or you're pro disability inclusion or whatever else it might be you must be an advocate of the social model but i'm i'm an academic and i'm sorry i want to be precise um and i think the social model is people are disabled by society not by their bodies and my critique of it if you like is to say that people are disabled by society yes we must remove barriers. Yes. But bodies and minds also disable you. Um, I think disability is complicated. And I think that the medical, the psychological, which we don't talk about very much, the social, the legal, the cultural, they all uh, affect uh, people who have um, disability or disabled people, whatever you want to call them. Um, and we need to intervene to improve things. I mean, for example, in the developing world, one of the big issues is not getting access to healthcare. care. Um, in Britain, you know, we get very cross if we don't get good treatment in the NHS. But basically, we can assume that we will get access to healthcare. My wheelchair is, is, is a bit battered and it's about time I got a new one. And on the NHS, every five years, I'm entitled to a new one. So, you know, the idea that people are not getting any of this stuff and life is very hard, uh, in that way is, is you know, is, is not familiar because we have an NHS and a good welfare state. Uh, I mean, they don't in America, so we'd probably be not taking it for granted there. But um, uh, my argument is that we need to meet all of people's needs. And one of the things, for example, in the British context, is we don't talk very much until recently about sexuality mm. um, and about relationships and about family being a major... Um, uh, uh, um, aspects of what people have a right to, have a need for, um, that community, that friendship that we were talking about earlier. Um, so, my, you know, just I've witted on, but what I'm trying to say disability is complicated mm. and we don't want to medicalize it. You, you referred to the medical model. I would rather talk about medicalization when we re- reduce people to simple or, you know, maybe not so simple medical issues and we say, well, that's all we need to know. I could have told you I have a G to A transposition at point three eighty of my FGFR3 gene, which is basically true. But it doesn't tell you anything about me. That's not how you introduced me. Um, you know, you'd have to know me and you know my life history. That gives you a sense of me, whereas the genetic change just tells you that I have restricted growth, which is true, it's not untrue, but it doesn't explain everything. So I think we want to move away from medicalization, you know. Thinking of people as labels or medical conditions. And we all agree about that. I mean, I don't see anybody out there who's going, no, no, that guy, he's got a G2A transition, or that woman, she's got schizophrenia, that explains everything. Um, You know, we are complicated beings, whether, you know, and and not just disability, all sorts of things. And we don't want to reduce. I mean, mean, you've got XX syndrome, you're a woman, Um, you know, but that's not relevant. I mean, the fact you're a woman is relevant. The fact that you've got two, uh, X uh, uh, X chromosomes is not relevant in this mm. sense. You know, it doesn't explain yeah. things. So I think you know we need to take a social approach to everything, to disability, to sexuality, to ethnicity. You know, we have to understand legacies of whatever you know i'm sorry shut up well it's almost
0: yeah no it's interesting because it's almost as if you're saying we need to understand it's too binary to say well you're either got a medical model or you've got a social model it's almost like there's a tapestry of issues and to just to be either anti-psychiatry which is kind of i suppose where the social model was was maybe born out of a little bit um uh, and then you know or or just um towards a uh, medical model it's it's too easy to just put people in those categories and it doesn't actually help anyone because you need to understand the whole the whole issue that people have to grapple with so you've got you know yes. the social model might say we need to have better wheelchair access or we need to make our physical surroundings more um you know suitable for people with different needs uh but and that's important as is understanding what a diagnosis does to a person um, explains yep. how their condition affects them in daily life so um, it's interesting yeah all of those things all of those things yeah. are
1: important and yeah. it depends you know let's let you know w- w- let's it depends what context you're working in um you know and and who you're talking to yeah probably if i'm talking to a, a social worker i'm going to say look um i want direct payments i want uh, to be put in touch with my I don't know, care agency or whatever it might be. Um, and these are what my needs and rights are under the Care Act or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to see my GP, I'd say, you know, I want painkillers, I want um, a referral to the, to the rehab people, and I want to see a spinal surgeon because I got sore back. Or, or whatever it might be, if I'm, if I'm, or I might say, look, I'm depressed. I want to see a, can you refer me for a psychology assessment or for a physiotherapy assessment? Or I might, you know, as you say, say, I want equal rights and employment. I don't want to be discriminated against. We want all of these things. We're complex beings. Um, and it's true. I mean, your listeners who are disabled will be saying, but barriers, much of the time, are what causes problems. And I agree. Barriers causes problems. Um, and less so because, I'm, you know, I, you know, I got an accessible bus here this morning on the way to work. I live in an accessible flat because I've got a ramp at the front. Um, I um, came into my building. There's a temporary ramp because they're renovating the front, but they put a temporary ramp to make sure that people get in. I got to my office, you know, there's an accessible loo. So, yeah, once, hopefully, hopefully, once people have got access to some of this stuff, they're going, well, what, what, that's all been dealt with. What's, what next, you know? Mm. And for some people, that might be a health or psychological issue. For others, it might be a you know, cultural issue, whatever it might be
0: yeah that's really interesting and i wonder i feel like i've heard um on a youtube um lecture that you gave you had a phd student and they looked into um the experiences of families who had children with autism and they found that there was a class issue so middle class people were able to access services much easier um whereas working class people were their children were either labeled as just mischievous or you know naughty children before they got a diagnosis and actually having a diagnosis is really helpful because then you get access to certain services so do you do you see in your, in your recent in your experiences that people from different um, socio-economical backgrounds get different support, um, or is that just an uh, anomaly? Sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't.
1: No, no, it does happen. It does happen. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. For, for children with disabilities, there is a class issue. Um, and it's, I mean, middle class people get, more, and I'm middle class, I'm, I'm, you know, that's, that's where I'm from, but middle class people get more of everything because they are very good at, 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 what's the word, negotiating the system. They know what they're entitled to, and they go out and they get it. I mean, not always. And we've heard you know, in the news over the last few years, a lot of parents of children with special educational needs complaining, for example, at cuts to the SEN budgets by 10% and you know terrible things. So I'm not saying just because you're middle class, it's all easy. It is not. You are mm-hmm. fighting for everything. But you know, you have resources, you have social capital, you know who to complain to. Um, you, you don't take no for an answer. You, you know, you're better at negotiating a system. And uh, if you haven't got those expectations or you face discrimination and prejudice for various reasons, it's much harder for you. Um, and the, ref- the research you referred to is actually by a, a, um, a guy now who's a senior lecturer at Sumlin University, Steve McDonald, and he was looking at diagnosis of dyslexia. Um, And he was saying you're much more likely to be diagnosed with dyslexia and to get the additional learning support you need if you're middle class than if you're working class. And his research was interviewing working class people with dyslexia. But, I mean, you're not wrong in the sense that exactly the same thing happens with ADHD, autism. Yeah, kids who have ADHD, if they're working class, they're going to be written off as naughty, disruptive, and are less likely to get the services and, and, well, the diagnosis first. And then the services they need. Um, And I think sometimes in the social world, we tend to think that diagnosis is terrible and that it's labeling and it's awful. But the fact is, if you haven't got a diagnosis, it's very difficult to get the services to which you should be entitled. And there's some research, not done by my group, but uh, that I've read about, for example, children with intellectual disability. And the kids that had Down syndrome, and it was very evident that they had Down syndrome. You know, that, that it was, okay, you've got Down syndrome, we'll try and support you. But the kids who had intellectual disabilities but didn't have Down syndrome, it was much harder to get a diagnosis. It's, it was It was troubling and difficult for the parents. When they went to the healthcare professionals or educational professionals, they couldn't prove or they didn't have clarity about what their child's needs were. And it was much more difficult. So sometimes having a label is good. It helps mm. us get what we're entitled to not if it's not good if it means that you're just defined by that label forevermore. we we did research in schools in the 1990s and you know the teacher would say uh, this is so and so he is an autism you know so yeah. uh, I, they were just treating people by the label and yeah. it's daft yeah you know, they were a little kid and they had all of these different traits and interests and stuff to say that's an autism that's an adhd that's a dyslexia mm. as if they're just sort of you know labels is inhuman um just terrible yeah Um, so it's a laziness that professionals sometimes slip into
0: um so kind of connected i think is you've um talked or written about dementia and uh seeing dementia as a disability which you've feel that it it could be quite important for people with dementia. Um, And I actually attended a talk by Wendy Mitchell, I think the name is, and she's written a book about her experience with dementia. Um, And she, one of the things, first thing she said in the talk was it was a a blessing. It was a relief when she got the diagnosis because she didn't know what was wrong with her. She couldn't understand and nobody else could really understand. Then as soon as she got the label, everything fell into place. uh, so is, is that the kind of thing that you're thinking about when you're, when you're understanding it in that way or, or more towards getting access to services or maybe something else?
1: I think it's both. And, and uh, you yeah, know, I love Wendy Mitchell. I know her well, and she's just a wonderful person mm. um, and has turned what could be seen as a, a really negative thing into, into a very positive thing, which she shared with the world. So, you yeah, I'm grateful to her. Um, I think, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Having a diagnosis does a number of things. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, so first thing is that, as that quote you read shows, it helps you understand what's different about you. And that you know we all want to understand our lives. So that's very empowering to know that you're not imagining it, that there's something real going on. And we know, for example, that women who are diagnosed with autism in adulthood, it's tremendously empowering for them to realize why they have had some difficulties in their lives. Um, secondly, as you say, it identifies what your needs for services might be. It says, you know, I'm somebody with autism, I want, I need X, Y, Z. Uh, and that can be uh, uh, very empowering. And it also helps other people that they encounter, um, not go, oh, you know, don't know what's wrong with them, or um, they're a bit odd, or um, they're a bit demanding, or they don't seem to be very active, or whatever it might be. Um, they go, okay, this person's got dementia, they face these challenges, Now, you asked me about, you know, dementia as a disability. And in a way, it's obvious. Of course it's a disability. You can't do stuff. But what I meant by saying, um, and I was really happy to co-author that uh, paper uh, with uh, um, uh, Peter Mittler, who himself has dementia, um, and Hannah Zelig, who comes from a mental health background. But what we were saying is that, why don't we think about the human rights of people with dementia very often? Um, They're human beings, they have a disability, they have a a disabling health condition. And it's not just the health issues that are important, it's the way they're treated, it's the way we think about the condition, Um, it's whether we listen to them. Um, And there's lots of problematic uh, approaches to people with dementia. Um, there's There's a whole bunch of approaches which seem to be helpful, but are a bit patronizing. I mean, we talk about dementia friendly, you know, yeah. oh, let's have a dementia-friendly community. And the aspiration is very, very good. But, you know, would we say, oh, I want to be Asian-friendly. I want to be, you know, African, uh, Brit- uh, yeah, African caribbean friendly. That would be dodgy. You know, we go, no, we, we have a duty to include people, wherever they come from, whatever their health condition. Um, and uh, we often disable people uh, by the complexity or the, or, or yeah, if, nowadays to, for example, interact with my bank, I have to go online. There isn't a branch very close. I have to go through a password and then another password. I, yeah, all this stuff, the way that our world is, very confusing for people who have, for example, dementia. Can we clarify it? Can we make it simpler? Um, can we give people with dementia more choices over their lives? Can we support them better in the community? Um, We do that for people with intellectual disability, um, younger people. Why aren't we doing it with people with dementia? To help them stay in their own homes and to help them negotiate complicated city centres or whatever it might be. Uh, Depending on, there are obviously many different types of dementia, um, but it might be that your issue is getting lost or forgetting faces or um, needing to be reminded of things. Uh, One of the great things that I've experienced in recent years is working with um, dementia pioneers. There are all these wonderful um, deep groups, dementia groups through the country. And um, I've had the great joy of collaborating with Wendy um, and Agnes Houston and other people with dementia on this project called um, Dementia Inquiries, um, funded by um, uh, National Lottery Charities Fund. Um, And what we're trying to say is, look, people with dementia can do research. They might know what's best for them. Uh, We might want to listen to them and partner with them more. Um, And we're getting some really interesting research from communities, from these local groups of people with dementia. And I love that. And of course, we should listen to people with disability, people with intellectual disability, people with autism, Mm. and people with dementia. Because, Um, I mean, the bottom line, sorry, one more thing. In the past, you were diagnosed with dementia late, and sadly, you probably declined quite quickly and may be dead in a few years. Now, you might be diagnosed with dementia, signs of dementia, five or even ten years before it actually um, interrupts your life. And so it's not, as it were, a death sentence anymore. It's something people live with. And so we've got in the community, all of these older folk, not just older folk, but mainly older folk, living with dementia, perfectly functional, uh, possibly, you know, occasionally confused or a bit slow about things, uh, and, and so forth. But demanding their rights, and that is really well.
0: Yeah, I mean, she's written. Um, Wendy, has written a book about it. Um, and one of the other things she said, which chimes in with the idea of accommodating the uh, the society we live in for people with dementia. The simple things like when you have a flat screen TV that can seem to some people with dementia, like a hole in the wall and very, and just covering that over or um, the way that technology has changed. So she won't, uh, pick up the phone and have co- conversation on the phone because people can't see you thinking when you're on the phone so FaceTime is really good um, and it's things like that I think a bit of understanding so even when you've got your family member and you're trying to get to grips with well how is this affecting the person that I love if we've got better awareness and understanding of the rights of, of people who have living with dementia I think that's uh, that's quite powerful um one thing that was really interesting in what you were saying is the inclusive way that um, some of the research you're you're doing is with including people um, who have a disability, and it's 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 a bit of a no-brainer. But I do find the the whole idea of co I mean, we'll call co-produced care, but co- co-production in research is a uh, topic by itself, really. But it seems that you're just doing it. Um, well, we're and, trying to. We're trying yeah. to.
1: Yeah. Because, you know, as you know, in the disability movement, there's this principle, nothing about us without us. Yeah. Um, and so it seems uh, a bit daft, really, to, to, to set about well, whether it's research with disabled children or people with dementia mm. or disabled people in Africa or, or the people receiving personal assistance, whether, whatever, without asking folk um, mm. and without sitting down with them and going, OK, what's the priority? What do you want done? Uh, what questions should we ask? Um, um, how should we analyse it? When we've got the results, how can we promote it? How can we disseminate it? All of those things, obviously, people with disabilities can do. I'm a person with disability. I do research. So people with disabilities, and many different disabilities, can do research. So, you know, it would be very odd if there was a sector of research about women uh, or about black folk where there were no women and there were no black folk involved. We would feel, oh, my goodness, this Mm -hmm. isn't quite right. So it makes perfect sense to me that um, uh, in the sector of disability, we should try and support people to become researchers um, and partner with them, and all the rest of it. Now, at the same time, um, uh, research is a is a skill. It, you have to learn it. Um, people do PhDs. It takes them at least three years. Um, so you can't suggest that you know an afternoon course turns you into researcher, but. I hope that by helping people understand what research involves, we can turn them into a partner. And if they really want to become a researcher, that's fine. Mm. We will support them to become researchers. But um, we need a sort of almost like a division of labor. Activism, for example, is not the same as research. Activism, you know, you want to change policy. You want to uh, recruit people. You want to get them angry and all the rest of it. Sometimes research is a bit calmer than that and is a bit more... Uh, you know, whatever the word is uh, considered and reflective than that. And so um, it depends on the situation. Sometimes we need activism, sometimes we need research, but all the time we should work together.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting um, and important, I think. Um, I wanted to move on or uh, to the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So that's the UNCRPD. Um, so the UK signed up to it in 2006 and it was a very co-produced convention because it was co-created with people who experience disability um, and it's really it's strong on independent living, autonomy, dignity but the UK is quite, uh, has been criticised by the committee that goes and um, inspects member states like the uk um on how well they're complying with the convention and uh, were quite non-compliant in a lot of ways um i'd just like to understand you know your take on the on the uncrpd um is it something that has just been signed up to because uh, there's a lot of other countries who are signing up to it and it's seen like a good thing to do or should we really be paying more attention and raising awareness of it because it it focuses on people with a disability and it's got some you know really interesting demands from from member states from countries who've signed up to it um
1: i, I think that the crpd is is a great document there are 50 articles and as you say it covers everything dignity and healthcare, and education employment the rest of it um, and it's a sort of aspiration document. And I think 150 or more, no, much more than 150 countries have ratified it. Mm. Um, and of course, the UK is in- included. One of, the, I mean, if you're looking at services for disabled people, the UK is one of the best places in the world, unquestionably. Much better than most places. So okay. that's, that's a fact. Um, but um, what a key principle in the convention is of, progressive realization and this was put in to really recognize the fact that many countries are too poor to offer the services that we would hope that they uh, a good country would offer um, so the principle of progressive realization says look you know move on the right direction move to bit by bit within the resources you have to deliver on the promises that you signed up to and the problem with Britain is that the process of welfare reform since 2007-8 um, you know, um, cut back and reduced entitlements. And it's that which has made the committee say there are these grievous human rights violations that, uh, you know, within the, if you signed up to the convention, if you ratified the convention, you shouldn't be making it worse. And the UK has definitely made it worse. There's, there's evidence of that. Um, so that's why they've been uh, uh, um targeted but you know the, i i still want to say the services here are not bad they need to be better but they they're, they're not bad um uh one of the things that many people are worried about as i say is education and trying to get children with disabilities access to uh, support in schools and 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 to get places in schools and some of the shifts towards academies and towards off-rolling and towards, um, uh, 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 you know, um, statements of uh, what uh, uh, they're called EHICs now, um, all of these things have made it harder for children with disabilities. And there seems to be more um, drift towards segregated special mm. schooling than included inclusive schooling. So there are lots of things there which should, should um, be matters of concern and which rightly the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is saying, look, this isn't good enough. Um, but, uh, you yeah, know, so it, it, I'm not, I'm, it's a mixed picture, isn't it? Yeah. In many, many areas, uh, the UK is good, but uh, where it's eroding the rights of persons with disabilities, that is lamentable and uh, attention needs to be paid to it. Um,
0: and just moving on to a question of the medical profession. So uh, sometimes people might say that the way that people are Uh, treated by medical professionals sometimes lacks empathy maybe it's a time issue or you know people doctors are under a lot of stress Um, but I noticed you written about um, whether the training for medics should change to increase their awareness of the experiences of people with disability maybe um, you know having people have a mentor who's a disabled person or um, Having some experience of visiting people um, who uh, experience disability in their own home, could you talk a bit about why you felt it was necessary to sort of talk talk about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I'm in support of doctors and nurses and health professionals. I think they largely do a very good job. Um, they have immense skills and knowledge. But and I worked in a medical school for five years what you're trying to do in that period is to cram their tiny little heads full of uh you know pathology and Mm. pharmacology and uh, anatomy and physiology and neurology and all of the other ologies um and you know it's people pass their exams they do a good job but the process of that is to really to view disability as a medical problem as um, uh, you know, it's to um, think of disabled people in terms of body parts not working and the tests that you can send off for to check what's gone wrong and the drugs that you can give to help people. Um, and that gives you skilled doctors. But the trouble is, it, it's not about the person. It's not about the human being. It's about the collection of body parts and symptoms and signs. Um, and we need to, at the same time as we're filling their heads full of the science, we need to say there's a person at the other side of the desk yeah. and the other, the other end of or the stethoscope or the, from whom you've just taken blood. And the person needs to be healed. The person needs to be heard. The person needs to be respected. Yeah. And one of the things that I did at Norwich Medical School um, was to set up this course called Working with Disabled People. And the medical students came and they met folk with disability. So they met, for example, they went, on, they went and did theatre with a group of people with um, uh, learning difficulties. They heard from people with mental health conditions, serious mental health conditions, about their lives. They um, met somebody with, who was deaf-blind. They uh, met all, uh, people with dementia, and so on and so forth. Mm. And, you know, meeting a person, not as a patient, but as another human being, as somebody they would sit next to on the bus, or in the cinema, was really empowering for them. And they got to ask the sort of, uh, the other questions, that, and to see people as persons, as people in their own right. And I think that's what we need to uh, expand medical training to include. And I know that Norwich is not the only medical school who does this, I know there's good initiatives at Leicester, and there was one at Oxford, and there was one at Bristol, and so forth and so on, Newcastle. Um, that in amongst all the science, we need to remember there's a person, and a person with human rights, and and just like the doctor, um, and they need to be treated equally. That's all we're asking. And it's not that hard, but um, I think the best thing you can do is to get a medical student or a nursing student or anybody else alongside a real human being Mm. who comes from a different experience. I mean, that might be a homeless person, it might be a gay person, or it might be a disabled person. But that way they get to see that they're persons, they're just human beings, just like them. Um, They're not just collections of symptoms.
0: It's so interesting to hear that because you would think when you're um, dealing with health, it's all about people, when you're caring for people, it's all about people. How have we got to a stage where it's so scientific that you have these reports where people have felt that they're just dealt dealt as a number or um, something that people have to see or deal with or fix? I find it quite bizarre but it's just the it, it, nature is, it's t-
1: troubling isn't it you yeah know, it's the pressure I mean there's a lot of pressure in the health service huge amount of pressure that's one thing also people are very much more specialized my dad was a doctor um, and he was a generalist really but now it's not even that you're a pediatrician it's that you're a um, you know a, a, a pediatrician of leukaemia or or, or um, autism or whatever you're very specialized mm. you're not a heart you're not a cardiologist anymore you you have a particular specialism in in a particular area of cardiology and so the more that we specialize rightly you've got to have that expertise the more we lose sight of the big picture
0: yeah so we've come on to the part of the interview which i do and um we asked a couple of Cactus questions. So these are prickly questions about social care. I don't actually have cactus with me, but normally when I'm doing a video in the office, we have a cactus um, for visual I'll imagine effect. the cactus. <laughs> you yeah. imagine the cactus, there we are. Um, they're not particularly prickly actually today, but um, interesting. So the one we're asking everyone because it is the 20th of November, 2019, and there's a lot going on around Brexit. Um, so that the question is, in what way do you think Brexit may or may not affect um, your area of study or interest, um, whether that's positively or negatively? What's your take on it?
1: I think that uh, we don't know, um, but we're worried. Um, m- m- me and my friends are worried that, for example, many of the drugs that we rely on every day come from abroad. Um, I mean, I'm not diabetic, so my drugs are, are, are not, uh, you know, don't need to be cold-chained. Uh, But uh, I still rely on drugs that are made elsewhere. Will there be enough of them in the NHS? Will they come on time? And will they be there when I need them? That's one set of questions. Um, The second set of questions is, you know, healthcare, social care is people. Um, And it's people in the form of doctors and nurses and all the rest of it, many of whom come from abroad. But it's also people in terms of care workers. And whether you employ your own personal assistants or whether you rely on um, home care, or you're in a care home, um, you probably will have been supported by somebody from Czech Republic, Poland, Bulgaria, not to mention you know, Nigeria um, and, 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 and Brazil. And if they can't come to Britain anymore, then we're gonna have a problem uh, because it's harder to recruit workers. Everybody has problems recruiting workers. And we know that people come here because they can get a wage. and often care jobs are entry-level jobs because you often don't need particular qualifications um, therefore are we going to have problems recruiting people and that's a big concern
0: mm, yeah um, it's similar to a lot of people saying similar sort of thing actually um a second one is does the media exacerbate violence against people who have a disability
1: um i'm not sure Um, I think there is some evidence that, um, for example, Glasgow Media Group and Strathclyde Centre for Disability Research did a study of the newspapers. It was called Bad News for Disabled People. And it was found that the process of so-called welfare reform exacerbated the idea of disabled people as scroungers Mm -hmm. and disabled people as being um, unfairly supported by the welfare state. Um, And this did lead to hostility. Uh, in the street. It led to the idea of disabled people as not deserving what they got, as um, uh, disabled people uh, uh, perhaps as targets for financial exploitation. And we know that you know, there, there, were, there was hate crime and, 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 and abuse as a result. So I, I, I think that's partly a government policy issue, partly a red-top tabloid media representation i heard um a year or two ago uh, a, a, a guy who used a wheelchair and was wheeling back to his mobility car and was you know about to transfer to get inside it and a mum with a baby in a pram went past and said i pay for that car oh, and she was referring to you know at that stage disability allowing living allowance mm-hmm. and basically saying it's unfair that you've got this car and i haven't and he was nonplussed. he was stunned But then a a bit later, he realised what he should have said. He should have pointed to the baby and said, I paid for that baby. Because those parents get child benefit. Because we live in a welfare state where we support people with extra need. Whether you're a child, having a child, whether you're a pensioner, whether you're a disabled person, it doesn't matter. We we agree that we should support people with extra need. And there's a rigorous um, assessment process. Uh, The levels of fraud... A tiny, 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 much less, uh, uh, I think, than one percent. So to think of disabled people who get benefits as scroungers would be as 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 um, wrong and unfair as thinking as mums and babies and toddlers as claiming child benefit when they shouldn't get it. Yeah, you know, we live in a supportive society, and we cannot lose sight of that. And sadly, sometimes tabloids encourage us to stigmatise people, to blame victims and uh, to be hostile to people and you know people read tabloids don't always you know a the story is probably wrong in the first place but b even if it is factually accurate um it's not everybody (laughs) you know it's not everybody who is like that so even when there has been some rare cases of abuse we can't then think all disabled people as scroungers Mm. any more than we can think of you know all women get pregnant to get child benefits just nonsense um and dangerous nonsense at that
0: yeah i mean there's all almost well, the argument that the media should um be more accountable for what it puts out there and the effects that it has on on people um but uh yeah that's interesting to hear your views on that uh the, so the other question is you've written or you've talked i think on radio four before about health well select committees um mm. and one of the select committees which is relevant to us, of course, is the Health and Social Care Committee. Um, so just wondering whether you felt that uh, that committee in particular was a help or a hindrance to the rights of uh, people with disabilities?
1: I, mean, I think that parliamentary committees in the House of Lords and the House of Commons are good. You know, I think select committees in particular, which hold government to account, mm. are essential. Um, so I am fully in favor of them. Um, I mean, the piece that I, I can't comment on the Health and Social Care Committee because I don't know it's work in detail, but I'd be very surprised if it hasn't done sensible stuff. I hope it's done sensible stuff. What I was commenting on um, in that piece was the sort of tendency of certain people in the House of Commons to become sort of almost prima donnas, you know, and it's all about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the people I criticised was Keith Vaz. Well, I'm not going to say anything more about that, gentlemen, but people know what has happened to Keith Vaz. But, you know, whether it's the speaker who did great work, but was a bit self-centred, pompous, whether it was the chair of a select committee. I mean, whether it's me, I'm sure people think I'm pompous and not myself. And, you know, whoever we are, however significant or powerful or well-published or or media, uh, you know, exposed we are, we all all pee in the same way. Uh, um, We all, you know, are are flawed human beings. And I think it's up to us to realise, to be humble. I think humility is a very good thing among public servants, um, and it was only it was only that that I was I was getting yeah. a bit aerated about because a lot of the chairs of select committees were on our newspapers and on our screens every day, and you thought, yeah, this is valid, but you know, mm-hmm. don't be quite as pompous as you seem to be.
0: That's fine. And the ones that I've watched, I've been. Very impressed by the health and social care committee myself, um, and they are doing. They they are they do have some clout actually, um, and it and it's interesting, and it's good to see people whether it's from CQC, uh, care quality commission, or the NHS or NHS England, just having to have, and they're te- a lot of um, the. Uh, the that they have um and the questions that they ask and they also involve people with lived experience So you're and it people... makes them
1: accountable it, it makes does, them accountable yeah. and visible and that can only be good and that's what a select committee does isn't it it's yeah. it's they are our representatives asking the questions in many cases that we've suggested yeah. um, and holding them to account because mps have power so you know more power to their ability you know i'm very very much in favor
0: yeah Great. Okay. So that was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much, Tom. It's um, my pleasure,
1: Sophie. And, and you know, again, you know, let's talk more.
0: Yeah, it's just been great. I can't wait to listen back, actually. Um, but for anybody who is new to Professor Tom Shakespeare or wants to find out more about what you're talking about, a wealth of information, um, I've got down farmerofthoughts.co.uk as your website. Um, that's right and yeah. so i try
1: to put everything i've written up there and you can you can roam around a uh, big prize for finding the article about dogs
0: okay <laughs> i didn't find that one actually um and there's uh, video youtube videos as well even if you just i think search your name on youtube you've done a few lectures which are helpful twitter um is it at tommy shakes that's the one that's correct brilliant yeah.
1: and um, everybody's welcome and you know it's the conversation that's important it's not tom shakespeare the the the, the professor it's all of us working with each other to try and understand things mm. and where, you know, and to and publicise things because I'm a Democrat. I believe we all have something to say.
0: Brilliant. That's a great note to end on, I think. Um, OK, so I think we'll end it there. Thank you so much, Tom. That's fantastic.
1: Thanks for having me, Sophie.